This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. We're taking a trip across the pond for this episode of Kicking Back. I'm your host, Jeff Kasouf, and joining me today is Kelly Simmons, the director of the women's professional game for the Football Association, the FA, in England. England is the place where there's been a lot of attention on the women's game, the women's club game, especially this year, 2020. We've seen a lot of high-profile signings. Obviously, some big-name Americans who are headed there for the year to to some of the bigger clubs. But even beyond that, Chelsea, obviously, with an all-star team and a lot of success for England on the domestic level, in the league, at the league level, and internationally with the Lionesses, uh, two straight semifinals at World Cups. So talk to Kelly here a little bit about how that translates and, and maybe affects each other and a lot about the WSL. The WSL turned fully professional a couple years back and has really skyrocketed in, in quality, certainly at the top. And we talk about some of the, the challenges of parity and the gap between the top and the bottom and, and how you how you manage that or whether you manage it at all and speak with Kelly about you know how the success translates between national team and, and domestic league you know England also hosting the women's euro in 2022 on home soil so some really interesting stuff here and and a lot um, I think interesting at the end as well about homegrown player quotas and sort of protecting uh the development of English players in the long term as this league grows into really a global league. So excited to bring you this with Kelly Simmons from the FA. She's tasked with basically anything and everything involving the women's professional game in England. And before we get started with that and a really exciting chat, please go ahead, rate and review and subscribe to this podcast. It helps us get the word out, helps more people discover it. And when you subscribe, you won't miss a thing. So with that, please enjoy this episode of Kick It Back. Jeff Kasouf here on another episode of Kicking Back, joined today on this episode by Kelly Simmons, director of the women's professional game for the FA. Uh, Kelly, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, always happy to get, um, I like to bring perspectives from not just the US. I think we've had a few different shows. We've had some perspectives from from around the globe and, and increasingly, obviously, uh, you know, the women's game, I think, is, is increasingly global. So, um, you know, wanted to talk to you about the professional game in England, um, which is is rapidly growing, has been, and I think has gotten a lot of attention, certainly here in the U.S. for obvious reasons recently. But I think you know beyond just those more obvious reasons, from an American perspective, it's been you know a, a league that's been growing, and and obviously we've seen on the international level as well what England's done. So, um, you know, firstly for our, our listeners, I mean, what is director of the women's professional game? You know, what what does that entail? Maybe what's a day look like? What are you kind of overseeing on the the whole? Sure. So um, it covers the uh, Women's Super League, the Women's Championship and the Women's National League, so tiers one to four. 
of the women's game. Um, our team um, that I lead also oversee youth development in the club, so the talent pathway in clubs, make sure we've got a pipeline uh, of talented players um, coming through into those leagues. So obviously the Super League is fully professional, the Championship is semi-professional, uh, the Women's National League has got some big, big clubs in there. Um, offering fantastic football opportunities across the country, um, but is uh, is an amateur league. Uh, and then we oversee the pyramid, which um, in England it sort of connects local football all the way through to the top. So if you've got, if you can meet those aspirations on and off the pitch, you can ultimately come come through all the way through to the women's super league. So so that's our team, and that's what we cover. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, England um, has garnered a lot of attention. Like I said, I think the signings. Um, everybody from you know the the several U.S. national team players who've come over, but but also a Sam Kerr, a Pernilla Harder, um, you know who may be the biggest of the bunch really when it comes to to the on-field talent at, at the present. Um, you know, what do you how do you view this moment for the professional game in England right now? What what kind of a moment is this for you? Is it is it unprecedented? Is it something that that is uh, a long time coming for you, having worked in the FA for a while? Well, certainly a really exciting moment. I mean, obviously, it's not without its challenges because of COVID and everything that, that we're all facing across the globe. But uh, in terms of the Women's Super League and kicking off a new season, we wanted to come back, um, you know, bigger, bolder um, uh, and really have an impact. And obviously, we're delighted to see some of the signings that the clubs have made. I mean, these are world-class stars that, are, um, you know, it's fantastic for our fans to be able to watch and follow and it means that you know the quality of the women's super league you know is really up there so it's a big step forward for us i think you know to to see such such talent playing in the women's super league and then alongside that you know our our ambition is that we have a blend of world-class talent uh, and english stars so um you know it's great to see the people like lucy bronze back as well as as well as the overseas stars that are uh, playing in the super league now and you know the the women's super league i, I think because of those, uh, you know, those players that you mentioned um, being looked at as potentially, you know, best league in the world, certainly in the conversation. And I'm sure, you know, uh, you might make that argument as well. Um, the talent obviously seems to be there. Only went fully professional as a league a couple of years ago now. I'm wondering, you know, you kind of oversaw or, or were obviously in the mix and part of that evolution um, from maybe semi-professional of, of Women's Super League when it first started um, to where it is now. How are things different from maybe a few years ago even? And, and do you, did you, is there a turning point you kind of identify or a reason really that um, things have kind of escalated quickly into this, this stage? No, it's a great question. I think, first of all, obviously going fully professional was a big big moment for the women's game here. We thought it was really important both in terms of our ambitions around England to have a fully professional league underpins the England women's side and that the players are playing in tough competitive football against full-time athletes week in week out so we thought that was really important then also in terms of our aspirations around the women's super league as as a a world-class product that that um, fans get behind in significant numbers both attending games and watching games and then the commercial development of the game thought it was really important that the that the product is is full you know the players are full-time the product is the best that it can be so I think that that 2018 was a sort of landmark moment in terms of development of the Women's Super League and, and from there it's really pushed on in terms of bringing commercial partners on board you know the overseas uh, rights, the growth in attendances, the growth in audiences and, and the investment um, from the clubs, which has been fantastic, 
to really um, you know really want to grow and, and develop their club develop this league and, and attract the sort of stars that we've talking about mm -hmm. what's this year been like I mean obviously a challenge for everybody but um, you know you're back on the field which is you know, not everybody has been able to say that certainly, you know, safely. Um, and, and I think from everything I've seen, that's been the case with, um, you know, managing, uh, you know, COVID-19 cases and, and protecting players. Um, you know, obviously no fans still for, for the large part. Um, you know, what, what has this year been like in terms of specific challenges and, and how are you kind mm -hmm. of hoping to, I don't know, maybe springboard from them, learn from them, and, and obviously, you know, hopefully return to some normalcy at some point soon. Yeah, well, it's, been a, it's been tough. Of course, it's been a, you know, a tough year for, for every industry and, and everybody in football. And, you know, we had to terminate uh, the last season. Um, and, and that was, you know, a really difficult decision. But we felt at the time, talking to the players, talking to the clubs, that was the right decision for the game at that point in time where COVID was in this country then we just focus all of our efforts on coming back really strongly. Um, the clubs have done a terrific job in terms of putting down the protocols to make sure that the players uh, and everybody involved in the club feels that it's the safest environment possible. The Premier League helped us with testing budget. Everybody's worked tremendously hard off the pitch to make sure the training environment and the match day environment is safe as possible. Uh, and I think we've seen that so far. Um, we've had very few um, positive tests in terms of COVID and that's because of the work the clubs have done um, alongside you know, colleagues in the FA to make sure that that is as safe uh, and secure as possible. And obviously then we wanted to make sure that we came back really strongly. We kicked off with double header Community Shield uh, at Wembley alongside the men. Um, we had uh, over a million people watching that, over three million if you count. Uh, live and highlights, the joint highlights with the men. So that was a great kick off to the season. Uh, and then we've gone on to have record audiences in terms of um, television. Obviously, our priorities, we're desperate to get the fans back. You talk to, you know, the fans that understandably are frustrated that they can't come back and follow, you know, what is such an exciting season with, with world-class talent uh, in those teams. Um, but, you know, we're working hard to make sure that they can see uh, you know, as many of those games as possible, obviously through FA Player and our broadcast deals, all the WS, you know, fans can see all of the WSL games. Um, and they can also see a live uh, Women's Championship game every week as well. So, you know, making sure that the fans have got access, but obviously the priorities as soon as the government uh, allows us to, then um, we'll be working really hard to get those fans back. That's the next big step for us, really. Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned last season, cutting short. How, how difficult was that decision? A lot of leagues... Um, obviously, you know, attempted to finish, maybe finished significantly later, had to rework the calendar. Um, you all decided the, the season on points per game at, you know, a time when obviously the, the title race was maybe in the thick of it and, and only about halfway done or, you know, roughly, um, you know, what, what was that decision like? I guess I'm wondering, you know, how do you get everybody on board? Or if at some point you just have to step in and say, this is what we're doing and <laughs> this is, you know, the best way forward. Yeah, no, sure. I mean, we con we consulted with all the clubs um, as well as uh, captains' meetings. Um, I think the key for us was we had to wait to see what um, government guidelines would be to come back in this country in terms of elite sport. And when we looked at sort of return to training guidelines and the return to playing guidelines and the testing and all of those challenges, um, we felt... Um, and also at that point, you know, the COVID numbers in this country were high. 
um, and people had real concerns about coming back just as most of the country's going into lockdown and actually staying home, working from home, um, limiting any travel and any movement. Um, there wasn't the same huge financial pressures to come back that the men's game were under, where I believe, you know, I think they would say it would have impacted them by about a billion pounds if they hadn't completed the season. And that helps fund a lot of football, not just, not just the Premier League. So I think taking it in the round, talking to the clubs in detail, talking to the captains, we felt the decision was right to terminate the league. We had to come up with a sporting outcome decision for UEFA. Um, UEFA were really clear in terms of the Women's Champions League that our teams that go through uh, to this season had to be decided by performance on the pitch for that season. So that led to a points per game. Um, or adoption of points per game. And that was sort of the view of how professional football would be finished in this country where it wasn't able to be completed. Um, so we went for, the FA board went for a points per game. You know, obviously tough decisions, you know, winners and losers in that as, as, as there always is. Um, as I say, and then, you know, the moment that was completed, everything switched then to how do we come back to the new season? How do we get the financial support? How do we work with the clubs? who often, uh, you know, sometimes are in third-party training venues. At that point, going back when it was terminated, some of those were shut. Um, you know, they have third-party uh, match day venues as well and just work through making sure we were ready to come back when we, when we kicked off with the Community Shield and then the league. And, and obviously we've gone on to do that well and, and be successful so far. Mm -hmm. uh, Community Shield was, you know, I'm sure a, a success, I'm, I would imagine you'd say, and obviously you know, the hope being that there would have been fans and, and maybe, you know, hopefully next time around, obviously, but um, what, you know, you brought up the, the financial implications, I guess, of, of the men's side of the Premier League and, and obviously significant TV contracts globally. Um, I'm, I'm wondering on the, on the whole, um, when you look at the women's game and, and perhaps the influence of the men's game on it, you know, it, it's something maybe at a club level, it varies by club, but what, what do you see as, you know, the future of, of that relationship of how that might look on a, on a league level, on a, maybe a national level would be the term. And, you know, obviously there's, there are clubs who, you know, even some of the bigger clubs now finally operating women's teams, but um, how do you foresee that as a, as a relationship in terms of the leagues themselves um, as, as the Premier League relates to the WSL? Do you mean the COVID impact on those clubs or do you mean? Just, just the business going forward of how much, you know, that they're, they're sort of intertwined or, or is. Sure. Or yeah. No, I do, yeah, no, I do what you mean. Um, well, I mean, the way that professional football happens at the moment, women's professional football in this country is that um, whilst the women's game is starting to grow revenues um, through TV rights, through sponsorship rights, through ticketing revenue when fans can come in, um, it is reliant on men's football club investment as part of that. So, um, so what happens in the men's game, obviously, is sort of hugely important in terms of what you know, then might, might happen in the women's game. Where we are with the women's professional game strategy that we're building out with the clubs um, and driving forward is that we need to obviously grow revenue. Um, and ultimately make the women's league sustainable in its own right. So it's not reliant on whether men's football clubs can and want to uh, invest in professional women's football. Now, obviously, we're, we're some way off that. We're on a journey. Um, you know, you've seen that we were brought Barclays in in, in record de deal, we think, for women's uh, sport in Europe. 
a number of the clubs are doing their own commercial deals. Um, we were seeing big growth in attendances pre-COVID. Um, we're currently in the market for our domestic rights uh, deal, which is hugely important for us in terms of audience and revenue. We're selling uh, overseas rights in a number of territories across the world and, and, and more are coming in. So we're on, we're on that journey. Um, but, uh, you know, we are reliant on men's football club money alongside our own growing revenues. And that's how the business model works at the moment. Ultimately, we want to get to the point where, you know, we're sustainable in our own right. Mm -hmm. what, what do you see as kind of that path? Is it a, is it a diversity of a portfolio of, you know, having the TV revenue, growing the attendance? Is there kind of a, a specific area that you see as, as a real significant opportunity on the, the women's side? I think when you look at um, how professional sports funded here, uh, the TV rights is a massive massively important chunk of that at the top level if you look at that's you know the, the big income stream in terms of men's football here um, and that's probably the big opportunity um, but they you know they're all opportunities they've all been untapped I think there was some research that came out some global research um, about how how much undervalued women's football was globally and it was huge huge figures and certainly when when I came into this job in 2018 and started talking to the clubs, clubs were starting to think about what are the value of our women's club rights and, you know, having previously maybe bundled them, either selling them separate, separately so that they get partners on board that really want to help drive uh, the women's club um, and, and have a sort of a natural sort of um, affinity and partnership, a collaborative partnership to drive that forward or, or attributable value as part of a, a joint deal across the men's and women's. So we're seeing a lot more um, commercial partnerships coming in um, as clubs really think through what's that right commercial strategy for them and what's the real value um, of the women's club and their rights which is growing you know significantly as the game's growing and more audiences um, and eyeballs are on the game. So I think there's a number of revenue streams that, that you'll see grow. I mean, match day attendance is, is, an, is another of those once we're able to get, get fans back. You know, we'd gone from an average of around 1,000 a game to, um, in, in one season, up to 3,000 a game, plus pre-COVID, as well as some big attendances uh, in, the, in the main or men's stadia so so huge opportunities there as well in terms of growth of revenue so i think a number of, of revenue streams that ultimately that we can can help to grow to to build more more revenue into the women's game mm -hmm. yeah the unbundling um i know is something that was that drew some attention at a confederation level at uefa of, of unbundling the women's rights and, and seeing the actual value um, as it was, you know, as Champions League and European Championship were sold to to sponsors, which I think is, you know, to your point, essential to actually defining, you know, what is it and what's the what's the return on investment and and everything else. So, um, and and you're seeing some of that ROI in the TV front a little bit here. You mentioned some record television uh, viewership. I'm just wondering what I mean. Obviously, you're ecstatic. I'm sure to to see that. Um, what do you, is there anything you attribute that to? Is it, I mean, it's in many ways, it seems like, you know, with the NWSL, we've seen this globally, we've seen this. It's just a matter of that the game hasn't been presented in these, these platforms and given that light, is, is that kind of what it comes down to? Do you think that it's finally getting that attention and, and getting that time slot it needs and everything else? Yeah, I think it's a number of factors. I think we saw a big uplift in attendances and audiences after the Women's World Cup. So we worked really hard 
um, to make sure that, um, I mean, there was huge interest in the Lionesses and the Women's World Cup here. We had record um, TV audiences watching uh, England. In fact, the semi-final uh, against you guys um, was the most watched TV programme um, outside of uh, a very popular comedy show on Christmas Day and uh, the Rugby World Cup final. Um, it drew the third biggest audience in the country for anything that year, not just football or sport. And that was sort of the impact that the Lionesses were having during the World Cup. So clearly we were able to, to build on that interest and profile when the Women's Super League kicked off. Um, we deliberately kicked off um, when the men's season hadn't started to give ourselves some space. The clubs are fantastic. A lot of them put their games in the, in the men's stadiums, really pushed them. We saw some big, big uh, attendances um, and that helped keep up, keep up the momentum and keep women's football uh, on the back pages and, and, and in the mainstream. And we sort of built from there, really. So I think, you know, um, Women's World Cup, the success of the Lionesses, working really hard at putting our big games in what we called our best slots, predominantly where we could away from men's football which is so huge here and dominates everything um to give it the space to, to get the best audiences and coverage and profile and attendances so so those were things really that we've really really focused on which we've seen you know have, have success both in terms of attendances and audiences mm -hmm. i'm talking about fans in this the stands um feels like you know it's been a while obviously <laughs> um but you know, when you look at the the longer term plan, and obviously at some point, hopefully getting back to to normalcy, is that you know where does that fit into the plan of playing more of those games in the big stadium? You mentioned, I mean, if we saw some of those record crowds; they were incredible turnouts. You know, maybe one could argue that they were a one off versus doing that every weekend. But how do you sort of view the evolution of of women's soccer, um, of of the women's super league? perhaps out of maybe the, you know, or, or is it, do you view it as an evolution out of the, maybe the, some of the training ground stadiums um, for lack of a better term that, you know, the Academy type stadiums into uh, you know, the 80,000, 60,000 seaters, or is that a very long progression, a long play to get there? Yeah. So it's a, it, it's, um, it's a tough one because um, if you'd gone back a couple of years, you probably would, um, wouldn't maybe have predicted um, some of the attendances that, that we did have um, and certainly some of the attendances in, in the main stadium. So I think for the sort of short to medium term, the focus when fans come back um, is to sell out the games in the women's stadiums, which are sort of five, seven thousand seater. Some of them are bigger. Some of them are already like Reading are already playing in their, their men's stadium. Um, we were just starting to sell out um, pre-COVID, just starting to sell out some of those um, games uh, in the smaller stadiums which create of course fantastic atmosphere both in terms of TV and, and being there so you know job one is obviously to to sell those out regularly and then for the bigger games that are going to really attract uh, bigger crowds and more interest like the local derbies you know the Arsenal Spurs of this world and the Manchester derbies and and some of those rivalries that, that have come across um, from the men's game to put those in the main stadium um, with the job being of then to pull some of those fans who maybe are coming to women's football for the first time or getting behind their, the, the women's section of their club to then start to follow and engage more with the women's. Um, so that's sort of where we've got to um, as, as, the, uh, as we weren't obviously 
uh, able to have fans in the stadium at the moment. And I guess, you know, when we come back, it'll be very much about trying to sell out as many games as possible and, and give ourselves the lovely problem of needing to put those bigger games in the bigger stadiums. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm wondering what has the data told you or, or surveys or maybe even just anecdotally, um, how is the, the women's fan or the, the fan of the women's game in England perhaps different or, or maybe similar to the fan of the men's game where, you know, I think an advantage that perhaps you have there where certainly in the U S we don't have this is, you know, you have a, a lifelong diehard Manchester United fan, let's say, um, they're ready to support that badge probably at any level, I would think. Right. So now they have a women's team, a increasingly successful one. Are you finding that that person, maybe even that man per se is, is ready to, to support the women's side or is it a totally unique sector of fan that's actually new to the game or the club entirely? Uh, it's, well, what an opportunity. You know, we, I think we've got a fantastic opportunity um, from the first group that you talked about, which is um, the the fans of the men's club coming over. So what we know, we've done a lot of research on who our fans are. Um, and previously, I think our target, and our targets have been predominantly um, going back in time, sort of young girls and dads and daughters and inspiring this gen the next generation uh, to see these wonderful role models and, and go on and play the game and, and follow the game. And you see a lot of, uh, of, of young girls and, and young children and families of young children in, in the crowd. But what we're increasingly seeing is what um, we call football followers, which is 16 to 34 year olds, a male skew in that, who are fans of football, fans of a club, um, crossing over to support the whole club. Um, and obviously, you know, that is a huge potential for us in this country because most people have a team. Most people are a football fan <laughs> and then are very, very passionate about their team. And um, the more we can encourage that whole club, the more the clubs um, can encourage getting behind your whole club, then that's a you know, huge potential fan base that we're, you know, to come over to the women's game. And we're seeing that. In increasing numbers I think there's sort of a myth as well in women's sport that more you know women would watch women's sport well of course they do but actually all the research not just football but all the research I've seen shows that actually more men watch women's sport than women so um, yeah so you know I think we've, we've got a real mix uh, in our um, in our crowds um, certainly it's it's you know it's safe it's accessible it's affordable um, the clubs will say that they're seeing new types of uh, new fans. So when, when I was chatting to, to one of the Manchester clubs, they were saying to me, you know, that it, it is, it's their fans that are coming, but some of them maybe can't afford to come see their men's game or can't get tickets, can't bring the whole family. And it's their chance to sort of engage and support the club in a way that's sort of accessible and affordable. So, um, so yeah, families uh, and football followers um, and a lot of football, millions of football followers who potentially, who are not potentially, who are increasingly engaging with the women's game, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, super interesting. I think the the modernization of of that approach, as you said, I think we've seen it probably everywhere, World Cup level uh, here in the U.S. with the leagues that there was that, and I think still kind of trying to grow out of that idea that you have to market to the young girl and and you know the the role model aspirations, which can all exist in in you know in unison with yeah uh, the actual 
hey, these are world-class footballers who, you know, are playing great football and you should come watch because this is a quality product. It doesn't have to be, you know, just the former. Absolutely. And we, I call them the, um, our big eventers, you know, the young, the young girls, because hopefully they're, they're playing football at the weekend. They're probably doing lots of things. You know, we know young children have got lots of hobbies, switch doing lots of things. Um, and you see them, you know, the women's FA Cup final, it's wonderful to watch them coming down Wembley Way in their numbers, uh, young girls, football kits, coming together as a women, as a little girls football team. It really, you know, gives you the sort of, you know, the, makes sort of the hair stand up sort of thing. It's, you know, it's fabulous to see. Um, but they can't necessarily always come week in, week out and can't necessarily always come to midweek games. And so, you know, you, of course you will see See, see girls at the, the, the big games. So if you want to really grow attendances and fill our stadiums, then, you know, we've got to also um, market to, to adults who've got, you know, that sort of time and those choices and, uh, and, and the money to, to, to come and purchase a ticket and, and come and get behind the team every week. Mm-hmm. I imagine that's increasingly digital too in, in the day and age that we are in, or, or digital first even. Um, you know, we've seen uh, some of the anecdotes even from over here with, you know, Kristen Press, Toman Heath going to Manchester United and, and those jerseys sold out, which is uh, the ongoing theme of the year. I think that uh, more jerseys need to be produced, uh, you know, the, to, to recognize the, the market value, which is good in a way, obviously. But, um, you know, the other side of it, obviously, you hope that that. Uh, I don't know, maybe lessons on the whole. I mean, we saw Australia recently and, and even in the U.S., you know, World Cup winners, there were some some issues even just accessing uh, some of the kits here, which was, um, I guess, a good problem to have in one way, right? But um, Yeah, so social media power overturn <laughs> in Australia on the kits. I was following yeah. that with interest. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's had quite a bit of coverage, the um, Manchester United shirt sales, as has the huge following that Alex Morgan has got, you know, so there's been lots of, um, lots of discussion in our, in our uh, newspapers and on social, yeah, around the commercial impact and the commercial potential of, of what's happening in the women's game now, mm-hmm. you know, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about that, um, sustaining that maybe and in, in some of the, the longer term picture, maybe on each, not each end of the spectrum, but dif- different levels. I mean, at, at the top of it, um, you have clubs like a, a Chelsea, I think is the the shining example in terms of the amount of individual talent. I believe Emma Hayes has said she wants to win every trophy this year. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think that there's probably some that rank higher than others. And, and the Champions League is obviously um, a huge one where clubs, including Chelsea, have gotten pretty deep into, haven't, you know, won in, in some time, obviously, um, at that level. What, um, you know, do you feel like that is a barometer in any way when you start talking about the WSL being uh, potentially a best club in the world, or sorry, best league in the world, uh, you know, a top league in Europe? Uh, is that, does one of your clubs winning a Champions League title help define that to you? Or is that kind of a separate entity to, to everything else we're talking about? Well, I think it's a it's a useful benchmark of, of how you know, the quality of, of the clubs in your league, how they then compare to the other um, top clubs in Europe and, and how they compete on that pitch. And, um, yeah, I know Emma's uh, gone on record as, as 
desperately wanting to win the Champions League. And obviously, we have to go back in, in, in you know, quite a few years to when Arsenal um, won, so the last English club to win. Um, so it's definitely one of those one of those factors. Um, you know, it's been it's hugely tough for. It's a great competition, the Women's Champions League. It's expanding again next season. I think it's only going to develop in its sort of importance and prominence and profile in terms of the women's calendar in Europe. Um, and uh, and it's you know some fantastic matches. You know, we've got some some some. You know, we're not just the only league that's developing. You know, there's wonderful developments going on in in France and Italy and Spain and other countries. So, you know, as we develop, so, so is everybody else, you know, which makes it, makes it tough for our clubs. But absolutely, in the new strategy, you know, one of our ambitions is that, that our club, you know, one of our clubs goes on to win the Champions League. Um, it's tough. You know, Lyon, have, you know, are dominating and have got significant investments, significant budgets, and, um, you know, it would be tough for a club to catch catch them but um you know we're hopeful that uh, we can have a successful campaign this year and one of our clubs can can do well maybe finally you know close that gap mm -hmm. and the, the flip side of that i think you know maybe at the other end of the the table at least in in the women's super league um you know there's a lot of talk i think this is something that all of these leagues you know, certainly in europe and, and probably globally have a, a challenge with is you know you have your your chelsea uh, maybe a Wolfsburg, Lyon is a great example, obviously, in, in France, where the top of the league, you know, is the, the upper echelon of, of clubs in the world, really. Um, and then you have the challenge of how do you have that parity, um, which is something that, you know, is a topic that comes up a lot here in the U.S. with the NWSL. And I hear um, even, even folks who've played in both leagues or coached in both leagues, they say, well, this is the most competitive league in the world here at the NWSL because the bottom of the table will always give you trouble. I mean, obviously early in the season here, we've had some, some larger margins of victory in a, in a couple of games at least. Um, is it an initiative for you to, to see parity uh, maintained is, or is that something where, you know, you see that it, it works itself out and these clubs will have to, you know, recognize that, if they want to keep up, they have to spend. And then eventually the best, you know, 12 clubs or so will be there over time and will be competing or is it, you know, how do you kind of view that challenge? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and one obviously at the moment I'm being asked um, quite a bit. I think what I would say, there's a few things I think that I'd say is first of all, as a professional women's league, you know, only a couple of seasons in. Um, so some of those clubs, are pretty new to professional women's football and building as Emma will tell you Emma at Chelsea um, will tell you it takes time uh, you know to build the club how you want it to be successful both first team and the pipeline of talent and everything that associates around um, having a successful side um, I think this is what Spurs second season um, Manchester United are quite new to it. You've got a number of clubs in who are building and only, you know, probably only going to get stronger and stronger. So I think we're, we're in that development stage. So I think that's sort of important to, to, to give it that context. Um, I think as a neutral, um, which I am, because <laughs> I just want the league to, to, to be the best it can, we are absolutely going to have a really tough title race. Um, I don't think anybody can call that at the moment. You know, and there are a number of clubs that could go on and win. And no one, I think, can call who's going to finish in the Champions League spots. And actually, at the bottom, I don't think anyone can call who might 
go down. So there's lots to fight for. So whilst there has been some uneven results, um, they've also been, you know, opening day, I think it was opening day, Manchester United took points off Chelsea, who the week before played so well in the Community Shield, everybody said that they were going to walk every game. Well, you know, there you go, there's football. Uh, and and uh, Man United take two points. Brighton went to Man City. Um, and Brighton are in a sort of a development phase. You know, they're doing a wonderful job investing their facilities in their youth development, in their first team, got a terrific coach in Hope, went and took two points off Manchester City. But they, you know, they, would, I think, would say if they were here that they're, they're, they're building. So it's a sort of development phase. I think it's still going to be really fascinating, even though we've got so many uneven results, both at the top and the bottom of the table. But ultimately, some clubs are investing more than others. You can't get away from that. Um, and the only way around trying to, to help those bottom clubs, if you like, in terms of bottom of investment, um, is to try and generate um, revenue to help those clubs be able to invest more. And that's what ultimately the women's professional game strategy and, and our ambitions uh, around TV rights and attendances and all those things we talked about earlier are all about helping to put money back into the clubs, both on and off the pitch, to make that league as competitive as possible. Mm-hmm. And and just quickly too on on the front of maybe helping some of those teams as they develop players, um, homegrown players. You know, a topic of conversation of of making sure that as the league grows, this is something we've seen on the men's side too, in in past years and and maybe decades even with the Premier League of ensuring that English talent is is getting opportunity. Um, you have homegrown. Uh, I guess quotas would be the, the term, right? Rules uh, coming into yeah. place yes. um, in, the, in the coming year. Uh, what, what's the goal there? I mean, you, I guess I should say here for our listeners, you mentioned the English national team, two straight semifinals for the World Cups, past two World Cups. You've got a home Euro coming up, European Championship. Um, what, what is the initiative, the hope there in terms of developing a pipeline of English talent in, in the professional game here? Yeah, so we're launching our new women's football strategy in a couple of weeks' time. Um, and one of the big priorities in there is to um, work with the clubs to improve uh, the talent pathway so that we absolutely work together to make sure that that pipeline of young talent coming through um, is, the, you know, is world-class and the best that it can be so that we can help clubs' ambitions and England. Uh, ambitions going forward and that is a big big strategic priority um alongside that work obviously you want to make sure that there's some space in the squads for that english talent to to get game time and, and flourish and so that's where the homegrown rules coming in consultation with the clubs um and it's just as a similar rule um, in, in the men's game around uh, so it's a cap if you like in the squad or a number quota in the squad uh, of which must be homegrown then the other thing that um I think it's hard to know how that how it will sort of play out um, is uh, Brexit and the fact that previously uh, in the in Europe there's been complete free movement of players um, in all walks of life, not just in, in, in football. And obviously that will change. So um, players will have to come through uh, European players, uh, non-British, will have to come through governing body endorsement like uh, players have had to do previously who are outside of Europe, which is tougher criteria to get through because you've got to convince the Home Office here that they are, you know, world talent that are not stopping young English uh, players or British players from from working um, or in our context playing football at the top level. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out alongside the homegrown rules. But ultimately, 
we've said all along, you know, through the strategy, um, we want world-class talent uh, and English talent and getting that blend right so that England can do well and our clubs can do well um, in, in Europe and, and domestically, you know, in terms of a brilliant product. And it's just trying to find, find that balance through those policies and through the work with the talent pathway. We've got the the dogs barking. They're they're sorry. Yeah, no, they're, it's they're, hard to get through. As that's the working from home challenge. Yeah, yeah. They're, no, I was gonna say they're they're queuing us to uh to to wrap. They're telling me mm -hmm. enough enough. So, um, I thought maybe we could end quickly with uh you know I want to make sure we touch on women in football, which you're involved with, um, an organization that just launched a rebrand. That I think uh, a significant push for for involvement right um what, what's what are you working on there and what's what's the big initiative in terms of uh you know what that organization is is about really for for our listeners well yes yeah, so I'm, I'm new in as a non-exec uh, director on the board I, I think i joined about a month ago i was absolutely thrilled to be involved it's a wonderful organization it's uh it champions women in the football industry that's previously been, you know, male dominated and, and some tough environments for women to work in. Obviously, it's changing. We want it to to change um, even more. So um, they support uh, women in the industry, um, support you know leadership development for women to come through uh, in senior positions and and champion really you know women's role. In the industry and i think there's some exciting developments in this country coming out in the next few weeks um, around equality code um, and diversifying making sure real commitment to diversifying both in gender uh, and, and and ethnicity in terms of um, senior positions and coaching positions and so i think it's a great opportunity for women in football you know to to, to get behind that and support that sort of pipeline of women to come through uh, into those top positions but yeah a, a great organization and really really pleased to to, to try and do my bit over the next <laughs> few years for them. Nice. Well, that's, uh, I think it's womeninfootball.co.uk for uh, all sorts of resources, right? For, for women looking to get involved in the game. And um, well, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's an organization, it's a membership organization for men and women. I should say that because male allies are absolutely critical in, mm -hmm. in the, in the work that we're doing to, to make sure it's, uh, you know, because football is a huge industry and, um, you know, and, and we all know businesses benefit from diversity. So mm -hmm. that's what it's about. Well, uh, Kelly, I appreciate you taking the time, um, talking talking all things, you know, probably just scratch the surface on, on the women's game in England. But um, I think certainly interesting to hear about how things are developing, professionalizing, you know, in, in a league that um, has certainly, I think, turned some, turned some heads of late, certainly. So looking forward to seeing how that continues to progress. Well, thanks, Jeff. Thanks ever so much. It's been great to chat to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Kicking Back, a podcast by The Equalizer. If you like what you heard, and we certainly hope you did, please go ahead and rate and review this pod. The more you do that, the easier it is for other people to discover this show and hear compelling stories from some of the most interesting people in women's soccer. Keep an eye out for our next episode when we kick it with our latest guest. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. 
CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone.